0: Welcome back to How I Deal, where we examine a single pass closed deal, how it played out that way, and hopefully provide some sales tips that you can use right in the front lines of your deals today. My name is Taylor Dahlem, full cycle account executive, now full-time content guy, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Junior Latte, the jazzed up sales guy here at Pickle. June, what's (laughs) jazzing?
1: It's episode 27. And yes, the jazz have kicked off to quite the season three and one right now. Hopefully six and one by the time this episode is actually released, but I'm also jazzed for today's episode. It's going to be great.
0: No kidding. It doesn't make any sense for the team they have. Honestly, Danny Ainge is continuing to be a mastermind, but they're shooting themselves in the foot for later in the season, but an awesome start. A quick explainer for those who maybe are tuning in for the first time or have not tuned in for a while, totally understandable, but to walk you through every conversation, we chat through a single past deal. What does that mean? Essentially, from start to finish, what happens from the research phase to all the way to getting that document signed and delivered and handed off to CS or wherever it goes next? That's the ultimate goal of how I deal We leave out all names and places for uh, for various NDAs or just for obvious reasons, allowing us to go a lot deeper.
1: Joining us today is the one and only Will Aiken, high energy guy. He's been in various AE roles at HR.com, Proposify and others, but today he's in a really unique role. Will is a great representation for any AE who loves sales, loves to sell but also has a passion and drive to do something bigger than being an individual contributor. Will gets paid by a company as a salesperson to make amazing content. So it's really cool. Will, thanks for joining. Hit us you know, with an interesting fact. Tell us about your roles and what problems Vidyard, the company that pays you, and SalesFeed, your content side of life, tell us the problems they solve as well.
2: Good day, Junior. I'm so pumped to be here. I'm sorry, you're probably feeling a bit outnumbered now. Two old salespeople, who now work in content creation. You're like (laughs) the only one who's still selling right here. But yeah, my name is Will Aiken. I work for SalesFeed. The problem that SalesFeed solves is boring sales content. So we're a media brand. We just make content all day. It's owned by video messaging for salespeople. The problem that solves is low response rates, monotonous emails that you're sending your customers throughout the deal cycle. All in all, just better communication. So the problem that solves is the fact that most buyers are sick and tired of hearing from salespeople uh, in the same ways. So... There's that. And an interesting fact about me. Oh, here's a good one. I have a scratch pad, very fresh scratch pad tattoo. I've never worked for the company Scratchpad in the past, but I have a tramp stamp <laughs> on my lower bank of the scratch pad logo. So
0: that's my please, please tell me you scratched on a pad the outline of that that tattoo well idea. it's I, quite near my rear end right so <laughs> i've got a scratch pad on my scratch pad as well like <laughs> the puns keep going it's endless content i think that was a, an awesome contribution to it was that was post saster correct the uh, that was saster i made a video
2: where i said that the, the top sponsor of saster i'll get their logo tattooed on me and the people <laughs> voted and scratch pad won i'm actually kind of glad because the, the logo is kind of like uh You can interpret it in a few different ways, right? Whereas if it was like like a you know, I don't know, a pickle would be pretty cool, but like something that more like a like a just a P or something like that, I'd be like, What's that? I'm like, Oh it's the Mm, the SAP logo. There you go.
0: God, oh. that that would be a fascinating. You know, congrats to Scratchpad, obviously, for winning that contest. But you know, hopefully you worked with to Win. They definitely you work with their marketing department to set up like a UTM link for how many people are visiting. I'll just go stand on the a, side a QR of the code road on your ass. <laughs> I'll stand
2: on the edge of the road like a billboard and like honk if you love, and then I'll put an arrow to the Scratchpad logo. <laughs> beep, beep beep. People will think, yeah. Oh, all right. Back to the deal. What are you walking us through today, Will? <laughs> what am I walking you through? I'm walking you through a deal. That didn't go the way I, I won the deal, but not the way I wanted to. So I'm walking you through a deal that I regret winning. All right, sounds wrong, right? For a salesperson to not want to have won a deal. We'll get on to why in a little bit, but <laughs> yeah. So I had an enterprise customer, fifty thousand employees, Fortune 250. Um, I was working at a company called Proposify, selling proposals software to mostly sales teams. And in this case, it wasn't selling to a sales team, it was selling to a slightly different persona in the company, but they were a Fortune 500 company, big logo. However, the deal size wasn't huge. And that's probably where some of the problems came from. So.
1: Yeah, it's such a unique one. It's massive company, smaller deal size, something that you'll talk to a little bit later as well. So interesting one here, a deal you regret, but let's you know, jump into the actual aspects of what happened. So tell us, you know, how you found out about this company. And then, of course, the research that you either typically conduct, but also conducted here to learn a little bit more before actually talking. Sure.
2: So the company was inbound. They came in through our website, through a lead fill, and they went through a qual call with an SDR. And qualification calls, they, can fr- they frustrate me. I've never been an SDR as an AE, a lot of customers I wish didn't go through that SDR process where they get qualified, banned. Oh, do you have budget? Do you have authority? What's the problem? The customers can get quite frustrated, especially when they are someone who's clearly qualified. Like, for example, Junior, if you had a CRO for a company that had like 100 employees in the software space for Pickle, which I imagine is somewhere in your ICP, yep. you'd kind of want to talk to them straight away. You know they're going to probably be be able to answer your questions. They're going to have budget. They're going to have... They're gonna have a fit of some kind. <laughs> they're in your ICP. You wouldn't want to send them to like a 21-year-old t- who's gonna ask really prescriptive questions, if you know what I mean. And mm-hmm. that's what happened. So they came inbound, they were a little bit frustrated by the time they got to me. Before the discovery call, though, I like to show up to every sales meeting I hold with something to bond and report over to show interest in them. Cause one of the my biggest pet peeves is when you join a call and someone talks about the weather or they say how are you? It's cliche, it's boring, and it kind of makes you Kind of makes the prospect roll their eyes and go, "Oh, another salesperson trying to be my friend." So I like to come with one or two interesting things about the company or the person that I'm meeting with. So I can go, "Oh, you know, before this call, I was actually looking you up on 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 Google. I spotted you actually recently entered the Fortune 250. You've raised up a few spaces from last year. That's huge. Congratulations!" And then I might ask, then I ask them a question about that. I can't recall exactly what it was, but by doing that, for what I'm showing that I'm on the ball. I'm not just another sales rep. Done my research. So they know they're not going to have to repeat themselves too much. Yeah, and.
1: You know, I make them feel special and warm and fuzzy inside. I love that. Let me give you another for all the account executives listening because the weather play is probably the go to, but nobody actually likes it. So, in your case, you found some relevant information on Google. What I typically do if I can't find something more relevant is I'll just start with how the conversation originally started. So, if it was via email or a cold call, I'm like, hey, Will. I appreciate the time here. We've got roughly 30 minutes. You responded to my email, which I really appreciate what was interesting about it, right? And let's just kick off the call right there. Forget everything else. And then the rapport will come later as you build some value. So yeah, for sure, try to find something relevant, interesting about them. But if you can't just go directly back to how the conversation started in your case, well, it would have been like, Hey, you chat with my SDR. How did that go? Can we move forward from there? So. Or even
2: like, hey, how did you hear about us? Because something that's important to remember of inbound leads especially is they're not all born equal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, every Everyone thinks inbound lead, hot, ready to buy interest. Now, an inbound yeah. lead can come from, I'm, I've, run, I've researched the entire space and I'm going to re- get damage from these three people and they make a decision. Or an inbound lead can be someone who was scrolling on Facebook and clicked an ad that said it was going to make their pipeline twice the size. You know, It's kind of like a certain enlargement ad that you sometimes see. Yep they click on that and then that's technically an inbound lead. If I treat those two people the same, we're going to run into some issues. So yeah. it's worth just
0: finding a little bit of context about how they got to you as well if you can. So we'll maybe set the stage. We talked about, you know, this being an inbound, so there wasn't a ton of prospecting work that went in. Maybe maybe some more research here and obviously maybe you've got some thoughts about the SDR in terms of the inbound model being being a little wanting in terms of process, but mm-hmm. t- like what was uh Maybe some more information. I assume if it's an inbound, where were they at? Like, were they evaluating other competitors? Where were they at in the buying cycle that set up kind of the next spot? What we'll talk about with Discovery. For sure.
2: So yeah, I didn't have to do a whole lot of prospecting this one as it was inbound. But of course, I always go back and listen to any prior calls that have happened. So if you have an SDI who's booking your meetings or is an inbound leader who's had one of those qual calls that I'm not a big fan of, good fit leads at least, and then go back and listen to that. Because you, the last thing, if a prospect's already done that, you don't want to you don't ask them any of the same questions they've already been asked because they're going to get frustrated and short tempered. They're going to be like, I've already said, I already told your friend this. Do so you not talk? Um, I also went on the LinkedIn. <laughs> I wanted to look at their team, much bigger company, 50,000 employees. So it's a bit harder to research at that size. But I often want to kind of have a hypothesis of the types of people who will need to be involved if they're not initially involved in that first call. And it can be really helpful to be informed as a salesperson. You can never go wrong being really well informed as a salesperson, sounding like you've done this before, because at the end of the day, you're the guide, right? So I like to come to a call with like a list of people who are like who aren't on the invite, and then I, at the end of that call, I can go, hey, look, typically from here, you want to do a team evaluation. I'm going to guess that these three people need to be involved. And they go, well, yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, that's exact. By doing that, you sound smart. You sound like you've done this before, and you build trust and and credibility. So I looked into them a little bit, but I didn't do any formal outreach until the call itself. When they came in, they were a bit mad, actually they had been through that call process right they, they wanted <laughs> to see the product and now they're on a they've gone through a qualification call now they're on a discovery call where i've only i don't i'm not planning on showing a demo in that call normally mm-hmm. that's up to. i sometimes do all right i'm a little bit cheeky i break process when i need to but they're already frustrated because what they did is they pressed a button on the side that said book a demo and now they're on yeah. call two and it's not a demo so they're feeling antsy right especially as they were very well informed buyers.
1: Yeah. Now the pressure is on. You really don't want to drop the ball. You want to make sure that it's a relationship that can go past discovery as compared to a ending discovery and then being like, let's just demo because that's what I want. And then they go dark or disappear. So that means you have to have a great discovery, right? You have to like make that experience better. You got to find the real problems and understand them. So what did that look like for you?
2: Yeah. So they joined the call. I had, I believe it was like a program manager and a project manager, not the usual personas I was used to selling to. I sell, was selling to sales teams. So these people were a little bit foreign to me. So I wanted to understand what they thought the problem was at first. So typically when someone comes in, I'm going to go, Bonnie and report, I'm going to set a really clear agenda at the start of the top of the call. It's all of their concerns and make sure there's nothing else they want to add to that. Time, who else is coming, who's here, the purpose of today's school and what you would like to cover. Oh, and also get them to agree on next step and say, hey, at the end of the school, can we agree if there's going to be a next step or not? Let's mm-hmm. cover that and then go into the discovery. So I got an understanding of the current situation, how they were doing things today, what wasn't working with that. And then it comes down to like digging a little bit deeper on those. So I think their problem was our team right now are sending out individual proposals for every single customer that comes through the door. And these proposals are up to 50 pages long. They're building them in a software, Adobe Illustrator, which is really finicky and often results in lost work and deleted files. They're building it, they're not designers, the proposals don't look good. And then when they send them off, we don't even hear back most of the time. So there's a whole lot of time being invested in all the wrong ways. And then the results as a result of that are still lackluster. So those were the problems that we uncovered. And we were finding out these tenders, these bids, these proposals they were sending out, we're talking millions, if not billions in some cases, we're talking about a Fortune 500 oil and gas company real money bit here, like bigger numbers than you could even fathom or typically I would see in a sales cycle. So the stakes were very real and that's what the discovery uncovered.
1: I could imagine that'd be frustrating for not just, you know, the seller, but when someone comes to the seller and says, Hey, where's that contract? Do you know, like, have they viewed it? Is it going to be signed today? What, you know, what's that look like? And this person's like, well, I don't know. I sent it. Right? Like, the, I it's eat out it of all. my hands, boss. <laughs> yeah. And this was a
2: proposal. So it was slightly, early. it wasn't necessarily a contract. We did help with contracts at, at Proposify. But this was more of a collateral piece they were sending to companies who wanted more information, which almost upped it more because they just weren't converting anything into pipeline.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so more pressure then to make the proposal look right so that you can get to the contract stage.
2: Exactly. Get the proposal right. Don't yeah. spend hours doing it, having like project managers and whatnot, people who are very well paid in a design tool, trying to make right. it look pretty, rewriting stuff that's been written already in the past, but they just can't find it because it's in some Google Drive, probably not Google Drive, these enterprise companies, they all use Microsoft. So it's probably in a Word doc somewhere that they just don't know about. So they're redoing their work. They're wasting their time. They're sending it off and then it's not turning into pipeline for them. So their entire team was, you know, that whole project team, which was like a renewable energy program was under the microscope because of it.
0: Selling to like you said oil and gas a much kind of a huge fortune 500 or 200 250 company but at the same time they're usually a little more I don't know lack of a better term laggard in terms of technology right mm-hmm. like like you said most have microsoft most are using their that form of CRM uh, like you said adobe as well some of these larger companies that just don't move super fast on tech and pr- proposal technology, things like that have come a long way. Yeah. What did a demo look like for you when you're showing product? And was it more of an educational base, like trying to catch them up to speed of here's what can be done? Or were they kind of bought in, saw, you know, know it's out there. And at that point, it's just, you're more of a tour guide of here's specifically what we can do compared to everybody else.
2: Yeah. So that's a really good question. So we go for this discovery pool. I uncover all these great pain points and I show a micro demo. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is is argued that you shouldn't show a demo on the first call but given this customer was super frustrated about the qualification process they had to go through an sdr like this is something that i think with the right leads you do your your pro your sales process is something that's going to work for 70 to 80 percent of your leads that's what a process is it's a fit for most it's going to result in wins for most customers but you need to know as a sales rep and i think you always need to be trusted by your manager this trust does need to be earned you can't just come on your first day selling and be like i'm gonna do things my way but there are some times where you need to break that process and it will reward you in doing so. So I gave them something to keep them happy and went and mend some of the wounds that happened. And it was literally just a high level product overview. This is how it works. And they were delighted with that. And they said, okay, this looks like an initial fit. Let's move on to another call. So then the demo call comes and we're getting more people involved now. And a demo, just, I use it as an excuse for further discovery. It's like the demo is the carrot, but like because they're chasing the demo and they want to see the product, Along the way, I can ask them a load of insightful questions. So then when we got to that demo, I'm actually going to do a customized demo, not a little micro high-level overview on this one. I'm going to bring in their stats. I'm going to bring in some of their collaterals so they can see what it would look like to build one of their proposals using this tool, Proposify. And I, I tweaked the data and the language used throughout my demo to meet them. So typically, I would be selling to sales teams. So I'd be like, oh, the sales reps create the proposal. So I had to tweak that a little bit. I'm like, you, you ha- your project managers are going to create a proposal in here, so tweaking some of those things just to make sure they feel like it's for them. And it's not just the same cookie cutter demo that they could probably watch on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, and along the way, I'm going to ask a ton of questions as well, which is exactly what I did. Uncovered a few more pain points, a few other frustrations that were going on in the team related to the proposals. But there were a few there were a few naysayers on those demos, though. Often when you involve more people, you, the first people I spoke to were pretty bought in and pretty well-researched. But the later people kind of were
1: stuck in their ways a little bit. So we got a few objections along the way as well. It's always nice when you can use your own product to customize and personalize a demo. But to be able to do that, in this case, you had to actually get collateral from them. So was there you know, a champion or someone that you kind of leaned into to, hey, I have this idea, I'd like this collateral, and you know, what I'm going to do is demo your own proposals, demo your own language, all that kind of stuff. How did you actually get that from them?
2: I explained that it, it, the, the demos are often more impactful when it's not you don't have to do it, some imagination. You don't have to connect the dots. I said, it would be really helpful maybe if you sent me an example proposal of what you're sending out at a moment. I can have my sales engineer rebuild that in our product to give you an idea of what that would look like for you. So you're not looking at someone else's stuff and the rest of the team isn't having to connect the dots themselves. They were obviously boring. They wanted the team to be boring on the product. So they were they were keen for that. They'd have to sign an NDA to get some of the clutter in the first place. But that yeah. was relatively seamless. It just kind of, they just pinged off to me. We didn't have any changes on our end. We'd signed it on Docu, using a competitive product DocuSign on the same day, so.
1: <laughs> it seems like doing this may be something that your competitors aren't thinking about doing. You know, yeah. like if you're trying to differentiate yourself and your product, then you have to, you know, outsell you have to be better you have to think in a way that your competitors might not be thinking and this was a really great way of doing that quite honestly maybe your competitors did it as well we don't know but we had competitors uh, on
2: this deal as well bigger ones with more features and more funding so that's exactly it you want to in it better than them at every stage basically
1: Yeah. So you mentioned naysayers that joined later stage, right? Every deal's got some barriers, some bumps along the way. Talk about some of those barriers that came up and specifically, you know, these late stage people that are old.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I think with any, especially in software, you have to sell the idea of change as well. And typically those people who have mobilized and started looking at solutions are already ready to change. There's always going to be some people on the team who are like, no, we do this. We've always done things this way. Um, so when I go into that demo, you know, you get questions like, so how do we do this? Like, let's say, how do we add headers and footers to each page? It's missing. It doesn't matter. It's nothing to do with the problem that we discussed with millions of dollars being bleeding <laughs> from their pipeline, but they want to know that they can still do things similar to how they do them today. Right. So in those cases, you, you, like they obviously are attached to the way they're doing things. today. like, how do I in adobe i do things like this how do i do it in this and it's kind of like the technicality they get caught in the weeds almost i'm like hey bud chappy i'm trying to solve a big problem here and you're talking about like (laughs) how do i indent a paragraph it doesn't matter you can do it don't worry so like those are the situations where you have to like equip people to change and you can't they almost have to get themselves there as well so like in, in reality i was like okay so what's the reason you're trying to add headers and footers to every page I ask a question, I want to understand why this person is so keen about headers and footers. He's like, well, I want them all to look the same. I'm like, oh, okay. So do you do that manually for every page right now as it is, and he goes, yeah, I do that. I'm like, well, watch this. So then I get my, I I drag and drop it and it automatically matches the rest of the document. He's like, whoa, so it's like this, you almost have to unravel the reason behind it rather than just saying, shut up, we're trying to save money here. We're trying to do something real here. So you have to kind of understand every objection. So I'm always going to be like, why? Give me an example, walk me through how you're doing that today. And that helps me then say, okay, well, you can't do the way that you're doing it today, but that's a good thing because the way you do it today sucks, right? So like, that's the narrative, obviously not so aggressive, but allow them to see that the way they're doing things today, there's a reason that doesn't work and why they wouldn't want to do it the same way.
1: Love that. I think there's a lot to be said there in a previous role when I was selling a very technical platform sometimes. So we would do like the high level demo and then other times we would schedule a technical demo, right? And it would be just the VP of marketing or just the CFO, right? Because the CFO is like, well, how many clicks does it take to do this and all the accounting pieces, right? And so- you deliver value, at to the macro, and then you come in with the micro. So also something else to consider, but for sure, when you've got 12 people in a room trying to demo, showing them footers and headers is obviously not as important
2: right And now. part of that demo process, you do have to get those people caught up to speed on the problem sometimes. They're not as aware of it. Mm-hmm. So like, that's where the discovery call, bring the information that you learned from that, the problems that you uncovered, the money that's costing them and putting it at the front of your demo. This is why we're here today. Does anyone disagree that this is a problem? Like, get them all bought in the problem right there at the start before you even get near the demo. Hey, look, I've just found talking to your team, you're losing billions of dollars because you're sending these documents off. They're taking way too long. You're wasting really valuable people's time doing this. And then you're sending them off and never hearing back. Are we all agreeing this is a problem? Is there any other problems you want to add to this? Am I missing something? Am I getting this right or are we on the same page? And by doing that, you can almost, before you even get into the product, get everyone to realize, okay, we're not trying to solve headers and footers here. We're trying to solve real dollar value
0: problems. Typically in larger deals like this, legacy companies, there's a legal process, a procurement mm-hmm. process. And a lot yeah. of times a, a yeah. barriers arise from that, no matter how well the demo, the discovery goes. So maybe walk us through that okay. back then too. This is where things go
2: topsy-turvy. So I do a discovery goal. I do a team demo. I do a secondary moral kind of like technical demo to ensure everything does what they need it to do. I think they even may have done a little test drive in there as well. I set them up the trial instance so they could actually click around and go over the header and footer concern could alleviate those concerns. And I managed that actively as well. had a meeting at the start and end of that, and during it I kind of stayed in contact. Contacts they felt like they had support. They decided that they would go with my, pro- my product instead of my competitors. So I was competing with a company called PandaDoc on this. They had a lot more funding, a lot more features, a lot bigger team, 24-7 support. You know, They had us beaten in pretty much every area if you just looked at it on paper. However, the team said to me, well, we love, we feel more confident in your ability to deliver on us because of the way you've managed these calls. You've always set a really good agenda. You've always kind of gone through that. We've always known what to expect. Everyone here felt really listened to. So it was more like I'd outsold them by showing up in the right ways. So then they're ready to move forward. And they say, all right, if we if this thing is like 10 grand or less, we can put it through on the company card and expense it. We can get around this. And at that point, I should have been like, let's do it for 10 grand. But it was about 12 grand. (laughs) So I was like, ah, cool. Well, this is about 12. So what would be the process there? And at that point, we initiated the procurement process. And this is where it all went wrong. My company at the time proposed if I just didn't have the collateral, the legal documentation, the reassuring questionnaire answers that an enterprise company like this needs. And so now we're treating a $12,000 deal like an enterprise sales cycle, like a million dollar deal. And it's being scrutinized the exact same way. It's being IT questionnaire. It's being security documentation. It's being master service agreement, MSA, NDA, redlining, all of these things that we are just not used to doing in a cycle because our main market was the average deal size I think was like 15K and it's a 12K deal, right? So we just didn't account these things. We weren't prepared for it. And what that meant was I was working with this procurement gentleman and he was getting pressure from the team who had already been bought in on buying the solution to get this thing done. And I'm obviously trying to make a sale. And they meshing me like, what's going on? I'm like, hey, your procurement person hasn't sent me the questionnaire yet. And they go to him and he's like, yeah, these people don't even have an MSA yet. So we're kind of like playing the blame game instead of working together, which most procurement people just want to get the deal done. It's the same as a the salesperson, they want good communication, transparency, expectation setting. And I just completely mismanaged all of that. So Although the initial sales cycle was about two months before they said, yeah, we want to buy your product, let's begin that buying process. I was in back and forth with a procurement team, jumping on calls with lawyers, jumping on calls with the procurement fellow who was leading the project, having to manage the users who were dying to get their hands on this product and start using it. And that lasted almost you know, seven months, pretty much until the day I left the company. And it was a huge time sink, ongoing problems. We had to get lawyers involved who bill by the hour. We had to create brand new documentation. that would have had to come up eventually, but ultimately the juice was not worth the level of squeeze we were going for. And I mismanaged a lot of that and therefore it took way longer than it needed to. So yes, procurement got involved. I ran an enterprise cycle with a dollar value of $12,000. <laughs> and that's,
0: that's why, it. I might have lost money on that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and a dog could have had it, honestly. I should have we would have distracted one of their reps for long enough that I probably could have won one of the, another deal, right? Yeah. I would have been better off spending every single minute on that deal cold calling new customers, and I probably could have closed five brand new net new outbound customers yep. with the time I spent on this, right? So like that's where it all went all went pear shape. That's where it went wrong.
0: Good lord. So obviously that added to the timeline. Things were moving along, moving along, moving along, hit a hard wall, but Kind of give us a, a high level overview across the whole thing, and even maybe a peek behind the scenes of what did the, the timeline look like as in totality, as well as like how did you manage the deal up and procurement, and then even after the fact, like mismanagement happened, but how did you just try to keep it, things organized on your end?
2: Yeah, I think that's the problem. I managed the deal like a it was a masterclass in discovery, demonstration, organization, multi threading, everything until that procurement process. I uncovered every problem in the world. There was serious money. They were bought in a product. They had confidence in me as a rep and us as a company. And then when the procurement thing got involved, I mismanaged that because I hadn't, I just didn't have the experience and our company wasn't equipped to to handle what they wanted. What I wish I had done is align better with you in person, set some timelines, become a better middleman because there was a legal team working. My IT team was there. IT team was doing more security and functionality. And they were asking me and I was taking a few little while to get to them. And then they were giving me fluffy answers. I'd go back to them. They're like, that's not enough. We need more. So there was all this going on. And then we had to jump on a call of our lawyers and our lawyers had redlined their contract because we ended up having to sign theirs because IMSA wasn't good enough. And then like I hadn't sent their redline contract to the procurement person to review the red lines. So by the time we got to the meeting, he's like, I don't know what we're talking about here today. I need to review this. Let's jump on another meeting. So then it's like meeting after meeting after meeting and all these things and all this time and all this money. Because... Laws are freaking expensive as well. So that that was the mismanagement of it. it. Took nine months. I closed the week after I left the company. Another rep got the commission on that one. Breaks my heart. But ultimately, yeah. So my advice in these situations is probably the <laughs> part that I missed was the decision process. If I had have known that they could just put it through on a credit card, it was under 10 grand, I would have given them two grand off. Honestly, give them the discount. So, like it's okay to discount if that if it's gonna save you seven months. That's worth two grand. But trust me. For me, that would have only been two hundred bucks in commission. I would have happily given away $200 just to get the deal done right there and then. So I think that's probably where I misunderstood. I missed, I, I underestimated just how technical enterprise cycle, cycles can be. And that's probably why I would never be an enterprise rep, because it was horrible, honestly.
1: Oh, I can see why they get paid so well. They're like project managers of their own. By this point, I'm like let me just pay you. Like the procurement person, I'm like, let me just pay you 200 bucks. Can you just slide this thing across the table? I'll take net zero because my hell. What a great deal to walk through, Will. Hit us with your tips aside from, you know, get the 10K deals because that's the threshold. Hit us with your tips.
2: So yeah, when you see a big logo come in, it can be very exciting. You get happy as you think about how good that would look on your website. Don't skip the questions about the decision-making process and all that. Come in still skeptical and don't necessarily chase the chase the shiny object because it may genuinely just not be worth you and your company's time. The second one is working with procurement IT teams. You will have, and no matter what, even if you sell small deals, eventually there's going to be an IT team or a procurement or a legal person. They want the same thing as you normally. They want to get this deal done so that end users can be happy and have their thing, especially this huge ROI on the business. So work with them as an ally, not against them. Me and that, that procurement fellow butt heads several times, blame games and all that. Work with them, have really transparent communication and set expectations really well. So they know exactly when they're going to be hearing from you next, when things are being done. And the last thing is the win for this one was structure your calls well. Do the little bit of extra work and the little prep work, the research, the agenda setting, the demos, the questions, and you can win deals against your competitors who have far superior products and feature lists. So be the better sales rep and you might actually just win even if you don't have the best quotations product.
1: Yeah. It's such a great deal learning how to outsell just being better than your competition. A lot of lessons learned there. Well, honestly, you managed to sell an enterprise company, you know, small business package, which I don't know that a lot of people can do, (laughs) but we're glad that you joined the podcast today. You brought a lot of energy, right? Just such a positive person. If you don't know Will Aiken, go follow him on LinkedIn, go follow sales feed. They put out great humorous sales content. Will, thanks for joining, man.
2: It was an
0: absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, gents.
1: And just like that, another
0: episode of How I Deal is in the Book's. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Of course, thank you, Will, for joining us and giving us such a really cool, interesting, but also a lot of lessons learned deal. If you are listening through Spotify, Apple, any other platform like that out there, please leave us a review if you enjoy the content or tips, suggestions of what you want to see on the upcoming episodes or just leave us a couple stars. We always appreciate the feedback. Five stars, not a couple, five stars. (laughs) You're being too too, too kind. Everyone listening, rate this podcast five stars right now. These two gentlemen are lovely people. They ask great questions. Appreciate it. Again, Will, thank you very much. Thanks everyone for tuning in and we will see you next time.